Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. And I'm Myra Flynn. That's me with my daughter, Avalon. She's about a year and a half, and we're having a good old time reading a book called Eli and Glamma by Bennington author Alana Hart. Is this a book? Yeah. Yeah. Is it called Eli and Glamma? Yeah. A heads up, I will remain a source in this episode. Avalon, not so much. She's still honing her interview skills. And as another heads up, someone important is missing from this episode. Our question asker. Angela, when do we get this question again? You know, I think it was, I don't know, March, April, sometime this spring. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me double check. Brave Little State received a question I adored. Okay, so the exact date was April 6th, 2021. And why did you adore this question, Myra? I think if I'm doing my job well, I'll make that pretty obvious in the episode. (laughs) Right on. To my delight, the question went public, the people voted, you voted, and it won. And the question was, quote, I have black children and wonder if they would be made to feel uncomfortable if we moved to Vermont. Unfortunately, I reached out to the question asker multiple times and never heard back. This is not the first time this has happened on BLS. So, question asker, we miss you, but nonetheless, we persist. So settle in, get comfortable or uncomfortable. I've got a whole lot to say on the matter because not only did I just move back here, not only do I now have a black kid in Vermont. Yeah. Yeah. In 1985, I was that kid. Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism project. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience, because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, Myra Flynn on Black Comfort. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive, from agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. My parents moved to Vermont from Rockford, Illinois, when I was one, because they wanted me to be more comfortable. At the time, their interracial marriage was less than welcomed in Rockford, and racism was pretty simply defined by some sort of threat to our physical safety. 
So in the rolling green hills of Vermont, with space between neighbors and a chance to really, as they've put it in the past, be themselves, my folks pretty much felt like they'd won the safety lottery. It was, and always has been, difficult to harsh their sense of optimism when it comes to this state, even when a neighbor placed a woodchuck on their mailbox with a noose around its neck. I, on the other hand, left as soon as I could. I graduated from Randolph Union High School at age 16 and never really looked back. Music and my own cultural curiosities have taken me to amazing cities like New York, Sydney, Australia, and for the last eight years, Los Angeles, California. And now I'm a mom. And when Avalon was born in L.A., we had record COVID numbers, a racial reckoning that caused so much upset we never even went to the grocery store, and wildfires five miles from our house. What's that they say about understanding your parents more as you get older? Long story short, now I'm in Shelburne, where we are safe, I think. But the culture shock has been real. Like, for instance, I might have a few trust issues when it comes to my front door. The other day, this this woman just started banging on my front door like a police officer. And I was like, what is going on? And I opened it and she was like, you have a package. I just thought, you should know you have a package. And I was like, you don't know me from anyone. I could have been yeah. crazy behind the door. You could have been crazy on the other side of the door. And she just wanted to let me know that I had a package. It's like aggressive niceness here sometimes. Yeah. That's me chatting with the Menard O'Neill Livingston family. I had the pleasure of joining them at their weekly Sunday Zoom dinner. And in this family, everyone answers the question differently. I have Black children and wonder if they would be made to feel uncomfortable if we moved to Vermont. There's Alexis, who's 12. I think that most of the time, they'd probably feel comfortable, but like there would definitely be times when they wouldn't um, because of their skin color. And then there's Ashley, who's 27 and pregnant. I came into college telling other Black people that racism didn't exist where I came from. (laughs) 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 And being looked at like, like, I don't know what's wrong with this black girl. I think she's broken. <laughs> Leash is 25, trans, queer, and living and working in New York. Something that would have been really helpful for me growing up would be to like be involved in more black and brown spaces. Like, even if you have to commute for it, like I feel like it's worth it. And then their mom, Christine Menard O'Neill. She raised her family in Essex, and she reached out to us after hearing our winning question. She's had a different experience than her Black children. As a white woman, like, I don't, I have never walked in their shoes, you know, and um, I may overlook things as well and not think I'm saying something that might be biased and unintentionally, and I think I've learned a lot from them. So just to be clear, in one family, we have a Black kid in school, a Black expecting mother, a Black trans kid who is now living in a major city, and a white mom who raised them all in Vermont. So many different life experiences. As you might imagine, this family has seen each other through a lot. It was hard to know where to start. I began with Alexis, Christine's youngest. I asked her, just in general, what makes her feel comfortable? 
something that makes me comfortable would probably be like just in comfortable clothes, I guess. And then socially, it would probably be like anybody who'd be like accepting, you could say, or like wouldn't care about my skin color. Alexis says in general, with her comfy clothes and her friends and her family by her side, she does feel comfortable being Black in Vermont, though her experience has not gone without incident, like at summer camp, for instance. And this one, like, kid who was also, like, white, he was just kind of, like, just saying, like, mean things about it, like, saying, like, oh, you look like poop or, like, and all that kind of, like, stuff. Ah, yes. The old, your skin looks like poop insult. I know it well. And even at 12, Alexis knows to take this insult to an adult. She took it to her camp counselor, and spoiler alert for this episode, many of these stories are less about racist experiences for kiddos and more about the adults who are dealing with them, or aren't. And we tried telling our camp counselor that we didn't feel comfortable and he was being racist. That's how we felt. And our camp counselor, who was also white, said that we're not going to use that word because it could hurt the other person's feelings if we call him that, when we were the ones who were actually being hurt. To be clear, when Alexis reported this event, her counselor told her that calling out the other kid's racism would make that child feel uncomfortable. Alexis says some advice for young folks moving to Vermont who may experience the same racism she did. An insult is only an insult depending on who it's coming from. So stay calm and don't help them out. If somebody were to be like racist or attacking you because of it, I wouldn't like be so like rude to that person afterwards because that would also like make them try. And they would act like they're proving a point. I think that being in a place that is very diverse and then going returning home to a place that's predominantly white is very shocking. Leash Menard is Alexis's older sibling, and they kind of dealt with the discomfort of living in Vermont the same way I did. They left. Leash is now living and working in Manhattan. I asked them if now that they are in a city surrounded by brown and black faces, are they more comfortable? And could they ever see themselves doing what I did, coming back? I think that it makes it harder to be in Vermont, to be honest, because it just feels a little more suffocating. Leash says that to them, anonymity equals freedom. And in a small state like Vermont, that's nearly impossible to achieve. When I'm in New York, I don't think about the fact that I'm Black that often, besides if there's like a police presence or something like that, versus when I'm in Vermont. I mean, I get stares, like I'm the only Black person in the room, also like reliving and unpacking a lot of racial trauma from high school and middle school and elementary school. So I think it makes it a lot harder in a lot of ways to be back there after being in a place where you don't have to think about it as much. Leash is a poster child for intersectionality. Not only are they Black, but they are trans and queer. I had to ask what comfort looks like for them. It's got to be different than it does for me, right? What makes me comfortable is when I can feel at ease, like when my breathing is slow when um, I can just like laugh and relax and when I don't have to think about my identities, um, whether that's being trans or queer or black, like if I can just exist as a person and not think about all of the structures that are trying to keep us down. (laughs) Turns out comfort is pretty human stuff. And Leash says they want to be safe in all ways. In terms of comfort for Vermont, like 
I always felt physically safe. I was never afraid of like police brutality in the way that you might be in like these cities with um, stronger police presence, but like the emotional safety is really lacking, I think, in Vermont. seven months pregnant. Uh, just, I think I'm approaching 32 weeks. That's Christine's oldest, Ashley. We heard from her earlier. Ashley lived in Essex until her high school graduation, then didn't stray too far from Vermont, just over the lake to Plattsburgh State Community College, where she says the student body was made up of about half and half BIPOC to white population. She says aside from her small handful of Black friends she had in Vermont, it was her first time really immersing herself in Black community and culture. And she had to deprogram her own whitewashing, which she notes was a symptom from growing up here. I came into college telling other Black people that racism didn't exist where I came from. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the thing. Growing up in Vermont, Black can sometimes be so uncomfortable, you fight like hell to maintain any equilibrium or some sense of belonging. By doing this, you can easily deny your own heritage and not only perpetuate your own self-loathing, but also become part of the problem. It's called, among other things, passing. And some of us biracial folks have the privilege of getting away with it more than others. By the time you realize there is a problem, and after high school is usually that time, your friends might not have the patience for your latent awakening, whether they're black or white. I felt isolated in a different way than I felt in Vermont because I was in a place where everyone assumed I was a black girl from New York City. And so white people kind of weren't socializing with me the way that I was used to in Vermont. But at the same time, the other Black students, especially in people of color from New York City that I went to school with, were looking at me like, we don't trust this woman because she seems to have some internal racism going on. And like, I, I didn't see it as that at first. I just saw it as Black people don't like me. I asked Ashley what events supported a transformation in her thinking. Her answer, she realized her fight to fit in was only leaving her out. She was only harming herself. Being brought up to think that my Eurocentric features were better than having Afrocentric features is a form of white supremacy. And, you know, I didn't really understand that then. I was you know, still saying things like I have good hair and calling myself light skinned and like things like that. PSA for folks who might not know, Ashley's reference to good hair is actually a derogatory term steeped in slavery when straighter hair, along with other Eurocentric attributes, were usually celebrated more because of their association with whiteness. Announcing that you have good hair? Not so good. I asked Ashley how she feels about her hair now. If you want to know the truth, I think that my hair is thinning a tad, so. <laughs> Dear question asker, 
Something about the phrasing of your question makes me wonder if you are a white parent with black kids. Perhaps it's because you said, I have black kids, as opposed to, we are a black family. And should that be the case, it's a very specific journey I cannot relate to. Except the parent part. If there is anything I've learned as a mom, it's that being a mom is the most I have never simultaneously been so obsessed with someone, so consumed by someone, and so in love with someone, or so protective of someone. Of course, of course you want them comfortable. Of course you want to protect them. And I can only imagine how difficult that must be when the monsters aren't only under the bed, they're kind of everywhere. Which brings us back to Christine, the white mom, to this incredibly diverse family. One thing Christine and I have in common, we both spent some time living in Randolph. It was definitely unique um, because you're looking at the early 1990s, you know, almost 30 years ago. And I think it was um, people were a little bit open as to what they would say to you more so. And um, and in the daycare, I, I guess the thing that I can remember most is the daycare that I had, Ashley. And at the time, I would get questioned as to whether I was actually their mother or not. Oof. This kind of stuff is where race and our stories lean more away from words like comfort and begin to enter dangerous waters. My parents were once stopped at the Canadian border because they thought my mother had stolen me. That wasn't uncomfortable for her. That was terrifying. I was, yeah, it kind of stunned me that anybody would even ask that question to begin with, you know, but then to, um, you know, try to confirm it. Christine says her Randolph experiences were short-lived. She soon moved to Chittenden County, where although diversity was limited, at least it was there. And regarding comfort in Christine's family, she's the only white person. I asked if there was ever a moment where she felt othered in her own house. And if she did, how did she reconcile that with the never-ending duty of motherhood? As a white woman, like, I don't, I have never walked in their shoes, you know, and um, I may overlook things as well and not think I'm saying something that might be biased and unintentionally. And I think I've learned a lot from them as well. And they've educated me. So this has been a good um, path, a good road for both of us. During this interview, Christine's eldest daughter, Ashley Menard Livingston, was seven months pregnant. Does she worry for her future child's comfort here in Vermont? Yes, I do. Even if my child ends up coming out, you know, white presenting, because there is a possibility of that. My partner is... He's Jewish, so he's got really curly hair, but he's white. So it's still going to be really important for me for this child to understand that <laughs> there's more out there than what he sees here in Vermont. It's a, Vermont's kind of a bubble. It's going to be something that I hope he'll be aware of, and I think we'll try to educate him. Education. Yes. I feel like anytime there's a systemic social problem, we bank on education. But we aren't just here to talk to white people and parents about how to be more comforting and educational. What if you're Black, a parent, and a teacher, and you have to do it all? Remember that book I was reading at the start of the episode, Eli and Glamma, by Bennington author and educator Alana Hart? Is it called Eli and Glamma? Yeah. All right. I got in touch with Alana for this episode, and it turns out she's doing it all. I'm in a book. I'm in a book. He likes to tell people that almost sometimes at random. She says her book is one of her greatest efforts to achieve both education and comfort, especially for her son, Eli, the star of the story. 
I'm glad that there are so many books that are about like our big curly hair and all of our brown skin and our features. But I also was like, we're just, he's just a regular kid doing regular kid things and hanging out with his grandma. And that's super relatable. Alana noted a particular struggle I can strongly identify with. As a Black mom, it's your job to simultaneously uplift and point out your child's Blackness in a state where they are racially outnumbered, but also you got to make sure your kid feels normal. If you've never had to straddle that line before, I'll tell you, it feels more like doing the splits than a straddle. And that's when books like Eli and Glamma are really most helpful. So it was important to me that... Um that he just had a book that was just about being a kid and capturing that for himself and others. On top of being Eli's mom, a Black woman, and an author, Alana is also the Dean of Students at Pine Cobble, an independent school just over the border in Massachusetts. She also has an extensive resume of racial justice and equity work. In fact, she consults for the Vermont Partnership for Fairness and Diversity, which conducted a DEI audit report for my job here at VPR. I like to think of her as a human barometer for all things fair, especially in schools. And some people feel like equity work doesn't belong or anti-racism work doesn't belong in a place that only or mostly has white people, but that's where it most belongs. Alana notes that if the goal is obtaining equity in a classroom, it's going to take work. It's going to get uncomfortable. And it's harder sometimes to find the joy in like the equity part because the equity part has joy, but it has work first. And Alana says the work has as many equity don'ts as it does do's. Try saying that five times fast. One is don't treat equity work as a one-size-fits-all. Sometimes we reach for multicultural because multicultural is pleasant and fun and feels like just like a joyous learning activity. Another equity don't, stop with the shortcuts. Our heritage is not a potluck. We can't be limited to just... Can everyone pick a country and bring a food? Can everyone name a person? You know, 28 Black people for the 28 days of February and what they did. That's a great starting point, but you shouldn't stay there for very long. And even in that moment, it should, it should be the jumping off point to a much more important conversation about why those things matter. Alana says parent or teacher, you just got to talk to your kids. And there's no better time than now, except yesterday. Students are having these conversations without us. It reminds me of like people who decide not to talk to their kid about sex. They don't not know about sex because you didn't talk about it. They still know. They just don't know from you. They only know from from their friends and people who might give them um, uh, an uninformed and problematic and troubling view. I mentioned Alexis, the 12-year-old we heard from earlier in the episode, and the age-old first-ever racial insult many of us have received in Vermont, that our skin looks like poop. I also brought up hair touching, something I've dealt with over and over again as a kid in Vermont and as an adult, and asked Alana for some step-by-steps for teachers in really the how they deal with these moments. Her initial thoughts? Teachers, when you get uncomfortable and begin to look for the adult in the room, no one is coming. These days, it's all you. Um, it's a very hectic life, right? I, I taught English for 11 years and there are so many things happening at once. You're literally trying to change change the wheels while the bus is moving all the time. Um, and it is, it is tempting to say, I just want to roll through whatever I'm doing and keep going. But Alana says if you don't stop right then and there and confront the situation, your student is going to remember that moment for a lot longer than you are. Um, I think the most important thing is to know that it's happening to your student whether you respond or not. So not only is it a disservice, it's it, and not only is it inequitable, but it's also 
pretty intensely unethical to not respond in that moment. And you can ask anyone over 30 for some traumatizing moment from their childhood. And if that person is a person of color, it will likely be something that was race related. Um, and whether the teacher stopped it or not, will stay with them literally forever, positively or negatively. Given all this, I asked Alana how she would respond to the question asker. I have Black children and wonder if they would be made to feel uncomfortable if we move to Vermont. She says, yeah, they will. But as a parent, you can do a lot about it. I would say um, that our job as parents involves, and educators, and your parents are your first teachers and they're your forever teachers, to always keep that door open for conversations, to always be prepared to advocate for your child, but also whenever possible. I mean, I keep your keep your child in as many BIPOC circles as possible. I think it requires a conscientious effort to help the child and to like expose the child to people of color, especially if they're not in their general community and they're not in their home. It can't not happen somewhere, right? They still need to be around people of color. That's pretty essential to their development. I thought maybe I could sneak a mama moment in here and ask Alana for some show or book recommendations for Avalon. I've just like discovered the kids section and we've been watching the Lorax. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, And I never, ever, ever let my son do anything Dr. Seuss related. There's no Lorax in this house. Dr. Seuss is deeply problematic and racist and he's been canceled from many schools. Dr. Seuss week has been canceled. Damn, I did my research and Alana is right. Dr. Seuss is highly problematic. See, we are all still learning. When we come back, my high school, its mascot and a community divided. Okay, so Mr. Rainville, I'm not going to call you anything but Mr. Rainville. At the top of this episode, I mentioned that I went to Randolph Union High School, and something about this investigation into Black comfort didn't feel right or complete without talking to someone there. I'm curious as to where you think we were as a community and a school in those conversations um, as an alum. Yeah, well... My experience is that those conversations didn't exist. <laughs> like, you know, I'm talking to Brian Rainville. He was my social studies teacher, and I have a lot of love for him. What was your experience of my blackness at Randolph Union High School? Um, my memory of you is such a shy, sweet, caring person. From what I recall, he was the only teacher to even mention black history in the whole of my time there. And though at the time we were still a long ways from learning the Black history we needed to, in a small and rural town like Randolph, he was considered a pretty radical dude. The high school that you experienced hopefully is not the same school, state, community we are today. I'd like to think there's been a lot of evolution. It's been really painful to watch because of division, emotion, anger, resistance, denial. And Randolph's really been a crucible of that, Um, not merely with the mascot, but with the BLM flag, with um, a gay-straight alliance. The mascot. Oh, man. That R-U-H-S mascot. The Galloping Ghost. 
Legend has it, the nickname for the mascot dates back to the 1940s when RUHS basketball players moved so quickly about the court that opponents only saw flashes of their white teen jerseys. They moved like ghosts, people said. But the mascot itself, drawn by the now-deceased artist Robert Chamberlain with many interpretations since, was an image of a person atop a horse wearing a white cloak with cut-out eyes and a pointed hood. Remind you of something disturbing? You're not alone. Apparently nobody realized that a pointy hood with a cloak that covered part of the animal and was in motion might look like something that you didn't want your community to summon or represent. We dug up some photos of the old mascot. There's a link in our show notes so you can see for yourself. Now, people in Randolph will tell you that the galloping ghost was never intended to be racist. But it didn't matter. When visiting teams came to our school, I would often field questions from the Black kids on those teams as to why we had a giant KKK member painted on our gym wall. I never knew what to say. It seems that just last year, in 2020, others began to finally see what I saw, and the image was stripped off of uniforms and taken out of yearbooks. Though the mascot itself hasn't changed. It's still the ghost, but the the superintendent made clear, he said, look, the, the ghosts, that's Randolph, that's unique, that's part of our community history. But these visual representations have to change. I'll agree, the many new incarnations of the ghost have changed. They do look significantly less offensive. More horse, less ghost, no pointed hood. Mr. Rainville, or Brian, says the change in his and my former community, to quote Dylan Thomas, did not go gently into that good night. Yet it didn't go too well. Because the divisions were so deep, Myra of people who said, this is my culture and it's under attack and how dare you, without that moment of of reflection to say, well, how does this look to other people who don't have this history in their DNA of knowing what this symbol has meant to this community for more than half a century? Brian said the giant mural on our gym wall began to look frayed. And I felt like those fissures in the paint represented what was happening in the community because something that was there and seemed stable was literally coming apart. And as a historian, as a student of American history for three decades, that's what I feel like right now, that that everything is just kind of peeling away and we're starting to see the big picture underneath. fascinates me. I spent this whole conversation, as us reporters like to do, trying to get a sense of his political lens on these issues. Is he left, right, radical, Switzerland? Like, where does he, the person, actually stand? On all topics, it became increasingly clear that Brian Rainville is none of the above. What he is, is an unwavering historian. And that's what made him such a great teacher. History's messy. History is, uh, is a study of loss and it's traumatic. I think that's one of the challenges as a history teacher is trying to get a sense of what do your students need? Because you have people in that room who know a whole lot about American history because American history landed on them. And you have folks 
who live within the fables of American history and will struggle immensely when you start to really look at the complexity of it. I hadn't been at Randolph long when I got my first angry letter from a parent who said in really indignant terms, how dare you question the morality of the founding fathers? They were good, honest, God-fearing Christian men, and slavery was another matter entirely. I learned at the end of this interview that Mr. Rainville is 48 years old, making him a whopping 12 years older than me. This means when I was in his class, he was 26, kind of a kid himself. If I haven't said it once, if I haven't said it twice, comfort is subjective. Comfort for one person can look like taking down an offensive high school mascot, whereas comfort for, say, an asylum seeker in Vermont, well, that's a very different matter altogether, particularly in rural areas. The Black community here is either really angry or very quiet. That's Libby Hillhouse, Vice President of the Northeast Kingdom Asylum Seekers Assistant Network, or NECASAN. Since the establishment of the Federal Refugee Resettlement Program four decades ago, more than 8,000 participants have moved to Vermont. These asylum seekers, some of whom are Black, are coming here with very different needs than, say, me. Their comfort looks like survival. They come across the border legally, and they are put into a jail, basically. And it might be a regular jail, a portion of which is for asylum seekers. So um, they are called asylum seekers because they are here legally, and they are seeking asylum, and they have to show a credible fear if they were to be returned to their country, something terrible would happen to them. So they come troubled, hungry, tired, exhausted, traumatized and uh, put into detention, which is not a happy place. I mean, certainly it wasn't COVID safe. Food, money, shelter, clothing, community. Nekasan works with their guests to help provide these basic essentials. And Libby says even with all that goes into providing their creature comforts, that's still just the tip of the iceberg. After all, if you don't have your mental health, none of the rest matters. We are trying to build a good infrastructure to support people who arrive traumatized and have real trust issues, maybe frightened, maybe suffering from you know, all kinds of things. I spoke with a lot of different people in this episode who are all, in one way or another, responsible for the comfort of their Black community, as mothers, as teachers, as leaders, as providers of refuge. And they all do one thing incredibly well. They listen. Libby says listening to others is also of benefit to you and your own comfort. If we are truly welcoming people who come from other places and other experiences, then how do we welcome without deeply listening to who the other is and being brave enough to maybe share our own story? The building of welcome is the creation of safety. And it's more than just listening, it's being listened to. She says a poem by Vermont poet Major Jackson entitled How to Listen tells you everything you need to know. 
I'm going to cock my head tonight like a dog in front of McClinchy's Tavern on Locust. I'm going to stand beside the man who works all day combing his thatch of gray hair, corkscrewed in every direction. I'm going to pay attention to our lives unraveling between the forks of his fine-tooth comb. For once, we won't talk about the end of the world or Vietnam or his exquisite paper shoes. For once, I'm going to ignore the profanity and the dancing and the jukebox so I can hear his head crackle beneath the sky's stretch of faint stars. Dear question asker, I wonder if I didn't hear from you because you are uncomfortable. If you are, I know the feeling and this episode is just for you. Here are some final thoughts. If you are a black kid in Vermont, good teachers will see you and know you are uncomfortable. Teachers like Brian Rainville. It's race, it's gender, it's faith, it's sexuality, and it's all hitting at once. And I don't understand as a community how we can't rise with one voice and say every child who comes through our doors has the right to succeed. It's a moral issue. And as Libby Hillhouse reminds us, just like adults, kids will need to feel welcomed and they will need to learn how to welcome others. That welcome goes both ways. So it's not only you needing to be welcomed with your baby in Vermont, but I have the same need to be welcomed into your community, into anybody's community. Alana Hart tells us there will be important work involved. Make sure you lean on others to keep up your own energy. Was it Mr. Rogers who said, like, look for the helpers or, or allies? And I like to start with people who, no matter where they are in the equity spectrum, have like a genuine interest in being better. And Christine Menard O'Neill knows if you are a white parent with Black kids in Vermont, you won't always be able to relate to their pain. But it's on you to listen and to talk to them about it. I, I think I keep a really good communication network with them. Like, ever since they've been young, they, they feel they can come and talk to me about any and everything. And even if you do all of this, you got to try to have a little faith. I marvel that it's happening now um, because I didn't expect young people to lead the way. Black Lives Matter flags, pride flags, mascot changes. Young people are leaders in change, with more coming up behind them. Avalon, are you a brown and beautiful little bunny? Yeah. Yeah, you are. I love you. I love you, baby girl. Oh, thank you. I want to eat the bananas. And change, real change, is always a little uncomfortable. Myra Flynn is an engagement producer on our show. Thanks so much for listening. To see photos of the families we heard from in this episode and some adorable pics of Myra as a Vermont kid, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. 
While you're there, you can submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. This episode was reported and produced by Myra Flynn and edited by Josh Crane and me. Mix and sound design by Josh Crane. Our digital producer is Elodie Reed. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions, and our very own Myra Flynn. Special thanks to Curtis Reed, the Randolph Herald, Brendan Kinney, and Timothy Sonnefeld. And to Myra's family, Phil Wills, Martha Mathis, and Tim Flynn, for allowing their story to be part of this episode. Thanks also to Major Jackson for giving us permission to use his poem, How to Listen. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. If you're a fan of the show, you can make a gift at bravelittlestate.org slash donate, or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We will be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.